Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basplega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. Case number four is TW presents to your hospital department with shortness of breath. TW is a 70-year-old female. She is 62 inches tall and 52 kilograms. Her husband said she was in good health until this morning. Shortly after breakfast, she had sharp chest pain and trouble catching her breath. He was concerned she was having a heart attack and called 911. She underwent standard chest, uh, chest pain assessment and initial EKG and enzymes were negative. On CT scan, a massive saddle pulmonary embolism is noted. She was bolused with 4,100 units of heparin and a drip was about to be started when she coded and resuscitation was initiated. During resuscitation, knowing she'd had a massive PE, TNK, 30 milligrams, was given IV push. Shortly thereafter, she did have return of spontaneous circulation and stabilizes. Past medical history includes osteoarthritis. Uh, she did have a stroke five years ago, hypertension, and a remote history of deep vein thrombosis. Current vitals are stable and she is intubated, and her blood pressure is 95 over 68. Pern and baseline labs, which were done before the heparin bolus and thus also before the, the TNK was given, INR 1.1, APTT at 30 seconds, which is normal, and all of her CBC parameters were within normal limits. Uh, home medication to note, she was on aspirin 81 milligrams uh, by mouth daily. So the attending physician asks you to initiate a heparin drip. What new or updated labs should be considered at this time? Should it be A, or number one, I should say, INR, two, APTT, three, fibrinogen, or, or four, no labs are needed before initiating heparin in this situation. When heparin is ultimately initiated, what would be an appropriate dose? Would it be one, 80 units per kilogram, eight, uh, a bolus of 80 units per kilogram, followed by 18 units per kilogram per hour infusion, two, 18 units per kilogram per hour infusion only, Three, uh, 60 unit per kilogram bolus, followed by two, 12 units per kilogram per hour infusion. Or four, 12 units per kilogram per hour infusion only. So let's just go back to a little bit of the basics first about thrombolytics, since you know it, part of the reason it gets to be an issue, especially for those of us that work in large uh, academic centers, is we don't use them as often as we used to, especially at these high therapeutic doses. This is the type of case where sometimes we do use them still, and so so since we don't use them as often as we used to in the in the MI situations, what have you, sometimes we forget just some of the basics of it. First, uh, let's just remember that thrombolytics exert their effect by converting plasminogen to plasmin. And plasmin is what it cleaves, ultimately cleaves uh, fibrin and fibrinogen, leading to clot breakup. Urokinase and streptokinase uh, activate plasminogen on a systemic level. And the fibrin and fibrinogen de degradation products that, that result can produce a systemic anticoagulant effect. TPA, retoplase, and TNK are all fibrin-specific agents. There's minimal amounts of plasminogen that are converted to plasma in the absence of fibrin. So they have a much more localized effect for that reason. 
So what laboratory monitoring do you have to consider? Uh, do you have to consider? And I do want to point to the ASHP reference that's really good on this on this type of situation that's listed at the bottom of the slide. For, uh, so you should really consider a baseline APTT, INR, hematocrit, platelet count, and fibrinogen, particularly if streptokinase is used due to that systemic effect. On an ongoing basis, APTT, heparin anti-10A levels, if that's what you use to monitor your heparin uh, titrations, and fibrinogen if you've used streptokinase. Uh, is there a role for thromboelastography? Not routinely needed but, if, uh, needed, but if you get in a situation, it may be helpful to assess if thrombolysis is still present uh, in the duration of thrombolysis. So let's move over a little bit and just think about some of the risks of bleeding that you have to think about with thrombolysis. And so this is the fairly standard uh, recommendations for absolute and relative contraindications that you tend to see for thrombolysis. And so I'm not gonna read through this entire list, but in the case of our patient, we clearly see that she had two risk factors for bleeding when looking at this, because again, we need to look at this when we're weighing risks of bleeding versus thrombosis and deciding how we're going to handle this type of situation. So here we can see that this patient does have a couple risks of bleeding when we're looking at, at use of thrombolysis. If we look specifically at the trials that have been done with thrombolysis and some of the different disease states, uh, we know that with CVA, uh, those are the, the, the risk factors for bleeding listed there. And then in STEMI, you can see the risk factors for bleeding uh, listed there. So if we're going, again, I know this is a little bit off, you know, not how we're supposed to do things, but yet some of these bleeding risks tend to cross over. So if we look at our case, even though this is a PE, you can see, again, we're seeing other risk factors for bleeding in our case that are present on these lists uh, that have been shown to be risk factor bleeding, at least in these specific indications for lytics. So I think it's, it's safe to say that our patients certainly have some bleeding risk in this situation, although clearly they had a very severe thrombosis. So what is recommended for heparin uh, dosing strategies in people that have, have given thrombolysis? Well, first, we generally want to use the standard heparin dosing that's generally recommended in venous thromboembolism, which is a bolus of 80 units per kilogram load, followed by 18 units per kilogram per hour. Therapy may be started with or continued with thrombolytic therapy, or it can be withheld until after uh, thrombolytics have been given. If patients on unfractionated heparin are interrupted for thrombolysis, one of the recommendations is to consider ch to check an APTT at the end of the thrombolysis infusion administration. If that APTT is less than two times control, restart heparin at the previous rate with no bolus. And if the APTT is greater than two times control, recheck the APT in four hours, and if acceptable, restart the heparin. So, so how would you choose between those different types of strategies? Well, look at your bleeding risk. And like we showed in our case, this patient does have some significant risk of bleeding. So perhaps moving to that more conservative idea on the bottom of this slide would be a wise idea. So getting back to our case, the, patient, the physician wants to start a heparin drip. So what would be the best thing to do? Notice the patient was interrupted on the heparin. They only got the bolus. They did not yet get the infusion started. Probably a good idea to check a PTT, see where we're at, and see if this is a good time to start the heparin infusion, or should we wait a little bit uh, uh, due to the risk of bleeding in this particular situation. 
When the heparin is initiated, would be the appropriate dose. Well, this patient's already been bolus, already been loaded up on heparin, so they certainly don't need that. So we really should start this patient on the standard DVT infusion dose of 18 units per kilogram per hour. Just remember, the only reason to give a bolus is to get somebody's heparin level to a therapeutic effect immediately, and that's not the situation we're in right now. So the key takeaways in this situation is, is, is first, thrombolytics can be combined with anticoagulation, but that does put a patient at risk of bleeding. You really need to analyze patient risk factors for bleeding when you're trying to make these treatment decisions if you just give them together or say if you need to be a more, little bit more cautious and perhaps wait uh, to see where your APTT level is, for example. Thrombolytics can be used with anticoagulants and PE, but you have to be very careful with it. So let's move on to our next case. Case number five is, is a suicide attempt, and this is a very real case that I had in my practice. JD is a 35-year-old male who's brought in by his friends when they found him disoriented. He admitted to them he wants to die and had taken all the pills he could find. His friends found an empty bottle of acetaminophen. His toxicology screen uh, was negative for other drugs, and his acetaminophen level was 125 micrograms per mil and N-acetylcysteine was initiated. Past medical history included depression. The pertinent labs on presentation at T-Billy was four, AST 150, ALT 210, INR 1.5, APTT of 45 seconds. A week after admission, he's known to have new swelling and redness in his legs and is found to have a new deep vein thrombosis. Pertinent labs at the time, the T-Billy was a little bit higher, AST of 80, ALT 170, LB1 of 3.3, INR 2.4, and APTT of 60 seconds. At that time, a heparin drip was initiated, and at our facility, we use heparin anti-10A levels to titrate the drips. Five days later, the treatment team was preparing him for discharge uh, in the next few days, and he was still on the heparin drip. You can see that his labs at that time were T-Billy had very, very slightly improved. AST was almost the same. ALT was a very slight drop. Albumin was about the same. INR was still 2.3. Serum creatinine 1.1 and the APTT was 62 seconds. And the team at this time uh, thinks that the patient is going to need a liver transplantation. So a very real situation I was working our anticoagulation service that day and I received a consult from the medical team to start warfarin on this case. So how do you proceed in this situation? One, contact the medical team and tell them that he no longer needs anticoagulation as his INR is therapeutic. Two, convert him to enoxaparin one milligram per kilogram twice a day and start warfarin five milligrams PO daily today. Uh, titrate that to an INR of four to five. Three, recommend to the medical team that River Rock spend 15 milligrams twice a day for 21 days, followed by 20 milligrams PO daily is a much better option for therapy. Or four, recommend to the medical team that Dabigatran 150 milligrams twice daily is a much better option. So let's talk a little bit about liver disease and coagulopathy. Patients that have severe liver disease have uh, physiologic changes to the coagulation system that affect both the risks of bleeding and thrombosis. And I think sometimes as pharmacists, we tend to focus in on just say the things that are promoting bleeding risk or say an anticoagulation type of effect. But yet that's not really true. It's not just a risk of, of bleeding or an anticoagulant type effect that's happened. There's a combination of both pro-hemostatic drivers and anti-hemostatic drivers. Prohemostatic drivers include high von Willebrand factor, low disintegrin, and, and metal, uh, 
uh, metalloprotease with uh, thrombospondin type 1 motif 13, a low antithrombin uh, protein CNS levels, high factor 8 levels, low plasminogen, and high TPA uh, levels. Uh, I mean, sorry, high TPA, admit, uh, TPA activator levels, which is also known as PI1, uh, PI or PI1. There's also anti-hemostatic drivers uh, that, that happen, like low platelet counts and function, low fibrinogen, uh, low levels of factors 2, 5, 7, 9, 10, and, and 11, and high TPA, low uh, tissue uh, thrombin activator fibrinolysis inhibitor or, or or, or taffy, and low plas plasmin inhibitor. So there's a combination of both pro-bleeding and pro-coagulant types of things going on in these uh, situations. Now it's important to realize that plasmin reagents used in prothrombin time INR testing do not contain thromb thrombomodulin. Only test that they only and they really only test thrombin generated in plasma due to pro-coagulant drivers, which are deficient in these cases. They ignore thrombin generation by pro-coagulant drivers such as protein C, which is not activated by thrombomodulin. The INR, and it's also important to remember where the INR came from. INR was a standardization of prothrombin times that was standardized across laboratories for patients on vitamin K antagonists, warfarin. It was not developed in patients with coagulopathies from liver disease. So using the INR in a way, say, to dose warfarin in these types of situation, honestly, on a purely scientific basis, is not appropriate, even though we certainly do it from time to time. So what are some of the recommendations uh, for anticoagulation in these situations? I really highly recommend, if you want to read in depth on this, read the article at the bottom of the slide. It's an excellent review of this topic. So first of all, you need to conduct a safe, uh, safety evaluation for anticoagulation in your patient. You need to look at baseline liver function tests, renal function, CBC, prothrombin time INR, activated uh, partial thromboplastin time. And, and screen the patient for high-risk varices if it's a cirrhotic type of situation. Need to implement bleeding reduction strategies, initiating, initiate proton pump therapy, uh, especially if there's peptic ulcer disease, eliminate, eliminate helobacter pylori if needed. If they're an alcoholic, they really need to stop drinking and avoid all agents that can affect hemostasis if at all possible things like aspirin, for example. Consider, consider the anticoagulant choice based on re individual renal and hepatic function values, and closely follow up with serial liver function testing and ongoing bleeding prevention activities. So what do they recommend in this particular article? They recommend with child's PUA that you have a choice of therapies. If you get in a moderate dysfunction with child's PUB, they recommend direct oral anticoagulants only with caution or warfarin. And with C, they, they recommend warfarin in that particular situation. So let's go back and look at our case. And here's your classic child's PU scoring. And looking at our case, the case is a 10. Okay, so that falls into child's pew uh, class uh, three. And so that really put me in a pickle with where his baseline INR value was. So I had to start looking at other options. So what could I do in this particular situation? Well, in the back of my mind, I started thinking about dabigatran. And what I was thinking about is dabigatran is highly renally cleared and undergoes, it does not undergo a phase one uh, uh, metabolism. Uh, it just has a conjugation type of metabolism. And again, most of it is excreted unchanged in the urine. And further, dabigatran does have a indication for treatment of DVT and P provided there has been a parenteral lead-in, which is what this patient has had. 
Now, it's important to note in a situation like this, they, those patients were certainly excluded from clinical trials. So this would be certainly controversial, but I was a little bit in a rock in a hard place because I don't know how you dose warfarin with an INR at a baseline level of over two where this patient was. So some institutions, and now there's a couple of miscellaneous things I do just want to mention as teaching notes here, is that first of all, some institutions use a heparin anti-10A levels to monitor warfarin, which is what we use. And But I also want to point out, if you were at a facility that used APTT, it had almost been impossible to dose heparin in this situation if you look at where this patient's baseline APTT levels are. It's also important to note that it's important to know if you do use heparin 10A levels, if your lab spikes that, uh, that uh, say or not with antithrombin or not, as since these patients are often antithrombin deficient, it could overestimate the effect of your heparin in this type of patient. So it's important to check with your lab in this in this regard. Now, it, due to risk of bleeding, uh, it is certainly reasonable to target a heparin 10A level because we do know that patients with liver dysfunction are at higher risk of bleeding. So it, it'd be reasonable to target the lower end of the heparin anti-10A range in a situation like this. And just realized, if you're going to check an APT, it's going to end up being really high. And so that's part of the way to, say, lower your, your PTT is also by targeting the lower end of your heparin concentration and hopefully lowering your risk of bleeding, although I certainly don't have evidence for sure that that helps. It's just a clinical gestalt idea. So what do we do in this situation? Well, this patient certainly needs to be anticoagulated. They are clearly still at risk. Uh, the patient, you cannot titrate an INR of four to, four to five. It's just INR is not validated at all in this type of situation. And you're probably going to put that patient at severe risk of bleeding. You cannot use a river oxman since it has so much hepatic clearance. And in this situation, really, probably your best option, uh, despite what that paper had recommended, is to use a big trend, 150 milligrams twice daily in this situation. Uh, a therapeutic INR is is somewhat uh, is somewhat meaningless in severe liver disease. That's not what it's validated for use in. Contemporary articles largely ignore that the optimal INR target for warfarin liver disease has not been designed, not been designated or designed uh, for warfarin uh, treatment, and treatment must be tailored to the individual treatment in collaboration with the rest of the treatment team. So we have MP, who's a 68-year-old female with a past medical history significant for chronic kidney disease and diabetes, who presents to the ED with new onset right calf pain. Her right lower extremity ultrasound revealed a new DVT. Notably, she has a baseline serum creatinine of 1.4 and a D-dimer of 2200. And so MP is initiated on a Pixaban 10 milligrams BID, followed by 5 milligrams BID after 7 days. Four days into her hospital course, MP develops pneumonia, for which she's treated with a course of cefepime and vancomycin. And eight days into the hospitalization, she develops an acute kidney injury due to supertherapeutic vancomycin levels. And so her serum creatinine is now 3.1. And so the team asks you, should they continue her apixaban at this time? And so that brings us to a little bit of a discussion of apixaban and AKI. So acute kidney injury may prolong drug clearance and lead to accumulation of apixaban. And unfortunately, there's no specific guideline recommendations for the management of apixaban in this setting. However, it's worth noting that when apixaban is used in the treatment of VTE, in patients with end-stage renal disease, or in those on dialysis, dose adjustments are not currently recommended by the package insert. However, it's important to note that these recommendations assume stable renal function. I also wanted to just quickly go over again that apixaban, as we all know, is the least renally cleared DOAC, 
And the half-life is approximately 12 hours in patients with normal renal function, but this can prolong significantly in patients with CKD. We should consider potentially monitoring apixaban. Um, so just to review, apixaban can prolong prothrombin time, INR, and APTT at therapeutic doses. However, these lab values can vary significantly, and so they're not routinely useful for monitoring anticoagulant effect. An apixaban-specific antifactor 10A assay is available, but currently the widespread use has been limited. And some institutions that have adopted this assay use this in patients with low body weight, advanced age, and like our patient, in renal insufficiency. And so looking here, you can see the peak and trough concentrations for apixaban antitenase that have been reported in the literature. It's important to note that the therapeutic, that therapeutic ranges have not been established and that these regions, ranges do not correlate with efficacy or bleeding and thrombotic events. And notice that the peak and trough concentrations do have some overlap. So let's talk about a case report. So the first case report here is a a review of a 70-year-old man with new atrial fibrillation who was started on apixaban 5 milligrams BID. He was later discharged. 13 days later, he represented with shortness of breath and a significant AKI. His serum creatinine was up to 3.1 from his baseline of 1.7. So he received apixaban 5 milligrams times 1 on admission, and later that day, the apixaban was discontinued due to his significant AKI. On hospital day two, he was started on a heparin infusion, which was about 36 hours after the last dose, and a heparin-specific anti-10A was drawn six hours later. This came back super therapeutic at 4.4. And just as a reference, our typical anti-10A range would be somewhere between 0.3 and 0.7. So by hospital day five, the heparin anti-10A had come down to 0.6. The heparin at that time previously was discontinued, so he was not continued on it. And then on day six, the heparin infusion was resumed. And so we know Apixaban has a concentration-dependent increase in anti-10A activity, and this is well-documented in the literature. Heparin-specific anti-10As may be useful for helping us determine, you know, the absence or presence of Apixaban when transitioning a patient to a heparin infusion. However, currently the package insert states that these tests are not useful for assessing the anticoagulant effects of Apixaban. So that brings us to a case series. I included two of the cases from this case series. The first is a, a case of a 78-year-old man who had respiratory failure, acute decompensated heart failure, and AKI who was admitted to the ICU. He was continued on his home apixaban, 2.5 milligrams BID for atrial flutter, and his serum creatinine, serum creatinine notably on admission was 4.5, which was up from his baseline of 2. So on hospital day five, the pharmacist assisted the team with switching the patient to a heparin infusion approximately 13 hours after his last dose of apixaban. And six hours after starting the heparin infusion, a heparin antitenny was drawn, which again came back significantly elevated at greater than two. And so the heparin infusion at that time was stopped. And then on hospital day seven, an apixaban-specific antitenny level was checked, which came back at 53 nanograms per milliliter. And so the decision at that time was to resume the heparin infusion as a bridge to warfarin. So in the second case here, this is a 55-year-old man who was admitted with AKI. His serum creatinine on admission was up to 8.68 from his baseline of 0.76, so very elevated. And prior to admission, he was taking apixaban 5 BID for a recent DVT. So his apixaban admission was held, and an apixaban-specific anti-10A was drawn approximately 12 hours after his last dose, which came back elevated at 261 nanograms per milliliter. And so heparin was deferred at that time. However, on hospital day three, an apixaban anti-10A 
had come down to 100. And at that time, the patient was transi transitioned to a heparin infusion. And so the authors concluded in this study that initiation of a heparin infusion would be reasonable in patients with an apixaban-specific when levels that are less than 50 and those who have a low thrombotic risk and potentially less than 100 in those with a high thrombotic risk. So that brings us to our question, what would be your recommendation to the team regarding MP apixaban? One, recommend to empirically decrease the apixaban dose to 2.5 milligrams BID. Two, recommend switching apixaban to dabigatran 150 milligrams BID. Three, recommend stopping apixaban and switching to heparin infusion when the next dose of apixaban would be due. Or four, recommend stopping apixaban and using an INR to help, guiding, to help guide timing of heparin initiation. So in this case, the most appropriate answer here would be answer number three. We would recommend stopping apixaban and starting a heparin infusion when the next dose would be due. It's important to note that if apixaban-specific anti-10A levels are available at your institution, it may be reasonable to use these levels to help guide transitioning. This would be particularly helpful in critically ill patients who are at a significant bleeding risk. So going back to our patient, what if MP had presented and instead of AKI, she was actually on stable hemodialysis? Would you still have recommended a Pixaban to treat her DBT? So as we previously mentioned, the package insert currently does not recommend dose adjustments when a Pixaban is used for VTE treatment in patients with end-stage renal disease. And additionally, the 2019 AHA ACC atrial fibrillation guidelines suggest that a Pixaban can be used in patients with creatinine clearance less than 15 or in those on dialysis. So it's important that we review a few studies. So first, we can look at two pharmacokinetic studies. The first one listed here was a study of patients who had mild, moderate, or severe renal dysfunction, and patients received a single dose of Apixaban 10 milligrams. The authors found that severe renal dysfunction, which they define as a creatinine clearance less than 30, did not result in an increased Cmax, but did result in an increase in AUC of about 44%. In the second study, again, this was a pharmacokinetic dose findings single-dose study, excuse me, of apixaban 5 milligrams, and they looked at eight patients with normal renal function or eight patients who were on dialysis. They looked at giving apixaban doses either two hours prior to dialysis or immediately after. And so the authors found when apixaban was given prior to dialysis, this resulted in a 13% decrease in Cmax and a 14% decrease in AUC. However, when a Pixaban was given after dialysis, the AUC was 36% higher than in those patients with normal renal function. Interestingly, though, the CMAX was still decreased. And so the authors of these two studies suggested that dose adjustments may not be needed in patients with end-stage renal disease. It's important to keep in mind, though, that these studies were small, single-dose studies that did not evaluate the possibility of accumulation with repeated dosing. And so the last two studies listed here are retrospective chart reviews. The first by Ciantis et al. evaluated more than 23,000 patients with atrial fibrillation and end-stage renal disease who were on dialysis. So patients either received a Pixaban or Warfarin. And the authors found no significant difference in the risk of stroke or systemic embolism, but did find a significantly decreased risk of major bleeding with a Pixaban compared to Warfarin. And finally, in our last study, this was a study of more than 800 patients with renal dysfunction, which the authors defined as a creatinine clearance less than 25. Importantly, patients did not have to be on dialysis. The authors of this study found that both bleeding and thrombotic events were lower in the apixaban group versus the warfarin group. And so again, our takeaway here is that despite significant increases in AUC, apixaban may actually result in lower bleeding and thrombotic risks when compared to warfarin in patients with CKD. 
And so one final study I just wanted to mention was a study of 146 patients who had renal impairment who either, again, received Apixaban or Warfarin. Patients were included if they had a creatinine clearance less than 25, a serum creatinine above 2.5, or were on peritoneal or hemodialysis. And to re relate back to our previous discussion about Apixaban use in AKI, this study actually included 17 patients with new AKI who had no pre-existing history of CKD. And in conclusion, these authors found that there was no significant difference in the rates of major bleeding or thrombotic events. And in summary, despite Apixaban being the least renally cleared DOAC, there is still significant risk for accumulation in the setting of AKI. It's reasonable to transition Apixaban to a shorter acting agent, such as unfractionated heparin, until AKI resolves. And the available use for Apixaban in AKI or in end-stage renal disease has been limited to small observational studies and larger randomized control trials are needed. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to your podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basiliga from ASHB Official and thank you for all you do for your patients. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.